Today's reading is from Romans 8, uh, 18 to 28. It's on page 1133 in the church Bibles in front of you. 1133. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But the hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, yet have, we will wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches out our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those that God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those that he predestined, he also called those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Morning, everyone. Keep the passage open in front of you. It is a grand passage indeed, isn't it? Amazing. So let's ask for God's help as we feed on it together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. May it be used for our good this day. Amen. Each week, as we work our way through Romans chapter 8, three weeks, started it last week, this week and the next week, each week in Romans 8, we're hearing uh, from a different person among, amongst us, sharing a story. So if you're with us last week, we got to hear from Shaley about the way that God's been at work by His Spirit transforming her life. This morning we had the privilege of hearing from Al and Mez, who are actually a part of this congregation. Uh, my name is Alan, and this is my wife Mez. We've been married for 13 years, and we're um, a part of the 10am congregation here at St Matt's. Um, like many couples, we wanted to have kids, and about four years into our marriage, we learned that that wasn't necessarily going to be an easy uh, 
um, and straightforward journey for us. In um, 2014, we experienced two miscarriages. And so needless to say, when we found ourselves pregnant in 2015, we were um, pretty anxious about uh, the, whole, the whole thing, really. It was amazing to be at an ultrasound scan and see a heartbeat. Um, and we fell in love with that kid straight away. Um, as Mez said, we had multiple scans um, and everything was fine. And about the 12 week scan, there was a weird vibe in the room and the sonographer didn't say much. Um, and then that week out of the blue, Mez got a call from the radiologist. Um, and over the phone essentially told her that she needed to terminate that pregnancy. Um, which sent us into a massive spin. And um, it was devastating. There was an, a complication, this um, tumour that was growing um, in the placenta um, for Mez that was making her very sick. The placenta of the baby was producing um, so much extra of the pregnancy hormone that my body wasn't just, was just not coping with the sheer amount of that, which was about 15 times that of a normal pregnancy. Um, so essentially in those weeks where we were watching and waiting, um, I was somewhat incapacitated as a person. But we were holding onto this hope mm. that this baby was okay, okay, okay. and was gonna be this miracle. In fact, Which we were I guess pretty certain. We were certain. We were that pretty certain. She was this miracle, and that's and what God that was God doing. Had her. Yeah. Then, then things got worse. Um, my health continued to go downhill. I was on a series of about fourteen tablets a day just to try and um, stabilise my blood pressure and um, keep the nausea at bay, so I could eat and drink something. Um, and at about fifteen weeks, we had a standard follow-up scan and all of a sudden our little girl wasn't looking so healthy. We were told that it did, in actual fact, looked like she was of what they call a partial molar pregnancy, which apparently don't normally last as long as our little girl lasted, and that um, carrying her was going to continue to cause my health to deteriorate, and that she was, in actual fact, incompatible with life. If we were to continue with the pregnancy, because Mez's thyroid system was shutting down, um, that her health was at significant risk. And I remember driving home from work, um, just thinking that I was gonna lose my wife. Um, on top of the baby and yeah it was horrible. We were obviously pretty traumatised and um, really wrestling with this decision. We've been told medically we needed to end a pregnancy but ethically and we didn't agree with engaging in that process um, but we're given few other options at the time. Um, and so this doctor, along with our ministers at the time, walked through that journey with us. Um, and we, yeah, after further testing to confirm that 
what they thought was the case was the case. Um, we had to make that difficult decision. Mm. But don't worry, because we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now, we heard that verse read towards the end of our passage before, and I'm sure it sounded good then, right? How does it sound having heard Alan Mezzer's story? Surely Paul wasn't thinking of that kind of pain and loss when he wrote those words, right? Now, there's more story to tell, and we're going to come back to Alan Mez a little later on, but in the boldest of terms, today's passage grapples with the problem of pain, with the struggle of suffering, and the reality, of course, is that, that we're all going to have our own stories, aren't we? We're all going to have our own stories, our own moments of pain that are littered throughout our lives, and, and for some of us, they aren't just moments, are they? But suffering is basically a daily reality for you. And for others, you actually might be in the very middle of one of those moments in your life right now. And so today is going to be hard because a lot of the time we don't want to consider our pain, do we? In fact, that's one of the ways that we try to cope with it, isn't it? We, we try to act like it doesn't exist, ignore it, suppress it, hide it, and so as Paul confronts the reality of suffering, today might be really hard for you because of that. But I'm praying that it's also good. I've been praying that all week, actually, that this would be good for all of us, whatever your situation might be, whatever your history of suffering might look like. Because the truth is, what Paul says here, believe me when I say this, what Paul says here has the power to revolutionize your posture to pain, and that has the potential to change everything. Now, if you caught Bruce's sermon from last week, uh, Romans 8 begins with Paul unveiling what it means to, to have the Holy Spirit. He does a bunch of things for us, doesn't he? He liberates us from the flesh, from our, our, our natural way of being. He transforms us from within. He guides us as we go. And he, he brings about our adoption into God's family. You remember that? Our adoption into God's family. I mean, it's a tremendous thing, a staggering thing when you consider the fact that God himself takes up residency within us. And to use Bruce's mountain imagery, he, he's mentioned it this morning as well, is we're kind of halfway up the hill, halfway up Mount Everest, and you can look around as you're getting higher and you can tell the lookout up there is going to be something else. And yet, you turn to keep climbing and you notice these dark clouds rolling in from the distance, and then it starts raining. See, as tremendous as it is that we now have God's Spirit, that doesn't mean that we won't get wet. In other words, having His Spirit, which Paul has just affirmed, it's not going to spare us from suffering. That's exactly where Paul goes today. And it's a reality that we all, we all know too well, don't we? Life is painful. It's painful. Sometimes very painful. But suffering doesn't mean that God's abandoned you. Suffering doesn't mean that God's abandoned you. 
And that is basically the overarching point Paul's trying to make in our section today. Don't think that your suffering means God is gone, that He's packed up and left, that He doesn't care, that He's not at work. None of those things is true. None of them. Your suffering doesn't mean God has abandoned you. And it's, it's, it's actually really hard to overstate just how important this point is for Paul to be making, given who he's writing to, Roman Christians, the Roman church, and given when he is writing to the Roman church. We think it was about 57 AD, uh, and which means in, in less than 10 years' time, the Emperor Nero, who will be the ruler of the Roman Empire, he's going to set a horrific benchmark for the persecution of Christians. The ancient Roman historian Tacitus, he writes about this. He says, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite torture on a class hated for their abominations called Christians. The very people Paul is writing this letter to originally, the Roman church, less than 10 years after they, they received and read this letter for the first time, they were going to be the ones torn by dogs crucified on crosses and then covered in, in tar and set alight as human torches in Nero's garden. My goodness. It's even thought that Paul himself was beheaded during this period of persecution. So what he's writing here today about the reality of suffering, it's not theoretical, it's not abstract, it's absolutely vital for what was about to be unleashed in less than a decade upon the people of this church, the Roman church. Your suffering does not mean that God's abandoned you. Now we're going to need to remember that. And so do we. And Paul makes this overarching point by giving three promises about pain, promises for the Roman church to grab onto and hold onto in their suffering, and promises for us to do likewise. Firstly, he says, your glory is coming. It's coming. That's verse 18 to 25. Secondly, your God groans too. Your God groans too. That's verses 26 and 27. And thirdly, your good is guaranteed. Your good is guaranteed. That's 28 through to 30. The promises. Now, did you know that during the pandemic, the worldwide puzzle sales apparently went up 400%. 400%. That's a surge, isn't it? Put your hand up if you contributed to that statistic during the pandemic. Very good. But you know, when you tip a puzzle out onto the table for the first time, it's just a massive mess, isn't it? It's a massive mess. Nothing is in its right place. But it's actually not the way that a puzzle starts life. You see, a puzzle begins life as a whole, complete picture, stuck on a sheet of cardboard. That's how it begins. It's only then that it gets frustrated into a thousand different pieces, boxed up, shipped off, and then sold to us to become our frustration. That's what happens. And that's what solving a puzzle is really all about, isn't it? Attempting to unfrustrate the mess, to try to restore the original picture. Well, friends, that is like our world, Paul says. Take a look at verse 20 with me. He says, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay 
In verse 22, he says, The whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Frustration and groaning. They're the words that Paul chooses to use. He's talking about suffering, he's talking about loss, disease, and death. Friends, these are the hallmarks of navigating life in a world that is in bondage to decay, as he puts it. Friends, this is not the way God created the world to be. Of course, it's our sin that has made this mess. Us turning away from God, and in doing so, we've turned this beautiful picture into a a big old pile of puzzle pieces. It's painful, and it's hard. It's hard to make sense of any single piece, isn't it? You hold it in your hand and you turn it around and turn it over. And on its own, there's no way of telling which way is even up. How is this going to fit into the big picture? What is it for? What is it doing? Why is this here? You can't tell by just looking at one piece, can you? And in the same way, we often can't make sense of our pain and suffering, can we? we ask those same kind of questions about the puzzle piece. Why has the cancer come back? Why did that accident happen? Why didn't they come home from the hospital? How could I possibly lose my job at a time like this? Why is that relationship so hard? The questions go on, don't they? But when it comes to a puzzle, what's the key to wading through the frustration? Well, it's looking beyond the single pieces to the front of the box, right? To the completed picture. Because the front of the box actually shows the glory of a thousand pieces all in their place, doesn't it? That is the hope of what's to come as you try to unfrustrate the puzzle. And the front of the box is so important. What do we do with it? We prop it up in front of us, on the table, don't we? We let that picture loom large over the the mess that you're trying to, to wade through, and we fix our eyes, not on any single piece, but on the way that it's meant to be, on the picture that sits beyond the mess, on the way that it will be again. That is the hope that Paul's talking about in, in these verses as well. That's what creation is eagerly waiting for. The glory of all the pieces put back together again in their right place. So the first promise Paul makes about our pain is that it will end. It will end. It says this in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Friends, we groan now. But one day, those groans will make way for our glory. And like comparing an ocean with a teaspoon of salt water, on that day, there will be no comparison between the two. So great will our glory be. What does he mean by glory? Well, the word Paul uses here literally means brightness, radiance, And that's actually how Jesus describes it in Matthew 13 as well. He says, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's glory, friends. 
Obviously, Jesus is being a little poetic here, not literal. I don't know if we need to wear sunglasses in heaven. We'll find out. But if darkness is death, then light is life. And in God's coming kingdom, Paul promises it will be gloriously brilliant, splendidly radiant life. No longer any darkness in our hearts, no longer anything twisted or corrupted or flawed about our bodies, about our minds, or about the new creation in which we live. Friends, that is what awaits those who put their faith in God. That's the picture on the box. That's the hope in which we were saved, the hope that holds on to us in the midst of the mess. In those seasons of suffering, look beyond the single piece of your pain to the hope that sits beyond, to the completed picture, to that day when your groans will be swallowed up by your glory and there will be no comparison. That is Paul's first promise. We find his second promise in verses 26 and 27. Have a look with me. He says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. You know, sometimes our pain is is so severe, our grief is so overwhelming, we can't even manage the words to cry out to God. I've been in that place before, it kind of feels like you're, you're, you're winded, like a, being spiritually winded and you're so disappointed with what's happened, it's like you can't even catch your breath in order to protest. Have you ever felt like that before? You ever been in a place like that before? What does Paul promise? Well, he, he says this, when we come to that place, God comes with us. God comes with us. In those times when our pain is so great, we can't even shout at God. He groans for us. That's literally what Paul writes in verse 26. Take another look. We do not know what we ought to pray for, he says, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. I mean, just consider that for a moment. The reality of that for a moment. In those times of our greatest anguish, when our suffering is the most severe. God doesn't leave us. He actually goes the other way. He prays for us. He groans for us. Consider the empathy of of, of the kind of God who cares so deeply for you. He will stand so close in your pain that He can groan on your behalf. Like what kind of a creator would be willing to do that for his creation. Well, it's the very same God, of course, who was willing to take on flesh and and to subject himself to suffering at our hands. That's what he did, didn't he? He's been there. Our God knows what it's like to bleed. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He's a father who knows what it's like to lose his son. He experienced a level of suffering we will never be able to comprehend, and so, of course, he is willing to walk beside us as we suffer. Of course he is. Every step of the way, even when we're spiritually winded. Friends, when you're looking for comfort, why would you look anywhere else than to the God who is with us in our suffering? That brings us to promise number three. Your good is guaranteed. 
You see, God doesn't just promise us coming glory. He doesn't just promise to groan along with us. He also promises to work all things for our good. Verse 28, I mean, I'm sure a lot of us can just rattle that off the top of our heads. It's such an amazing verse. But for those who can't, verse 28, read along with me. Paul writes this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. That, friends, is what you call a bookmark verse. By which, of course, I mean, I'm sure Kurong is selling bookmarks with that verse printed on it, right? Not just bookmarks, but pencils and stickers and bouncy balls and air freshness to hang in your car. It's just that kind of a verse, right? I mean, who can't get on board with God working all things for my good? It's like, sign me up for that. I want some of that. The problem is, everyone loves quoting that verse, but I've never heard anyone try quoting the whole passage as they do it, right? It's kind of hard to fit that on a bookmark. And it's, it's a bit of a problem because of a little thing called context. See, to understand verse 28 on its own properly, you actually have to locate it, read it, the other verses that are around it. That's what we call context. What else is happening? What else is Paul saying? At Bible college, they had this uh, cheesy phrase that they used to wheel out when they were teaching the importance of context to first years. They used to say this, take the text out of context and you're left with a con. Very clever, more college, very clever. It's cheesy, but it's true. See, in isolation, verse 28, you've actually got no idea what Paul actually means by good. The good that God is going to work through all things. You've got no clue what it actually means. And so, our temptation is going to be to just import the world's definition of good. Love, health, wealth, success, comfort. And we'll do that automatically without even realizing it because we live and breathe that definition in this world, don't we? You don't even notice it. We live and breathe it. But here's the thing. You read around Romans 8.28 and you quickly realize, if you're paying attention... Health, wealth, and comfort in the here and now is not what Paul's referring to when he says good. It's just not. It can't possibly mean that. He's just spent the, the better part of the last 10 verses ripping the band-aid of life. Right? It's painful and it's frustrating, Paul said. It's marked by suffering and groaning. Does it really make sense for him to then suddenly do a 180 and go, actually, you know what, the world might be in bondage to decay... But don't worry, God's going to work out a way to make your life comfortable and easy. That just doesn't make sense to, com to contradict himself like that. So what does it mean? Well, good question. Paul tells us in the very next verse. You don't have to read the whole thing, just read the next verse. Verse 29, here's what he says. For those God foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's the good. Becoming like Christ. That's the good Paul's talking about. That in all things, by all things, and through all things, that God in His sovereignty, that God by the power of His Spirit, that He is molding us and shaping us more and more, day by day, tear by tear. He's forming us into the glorious likeness of our Saviour. 
Tim Keller is no stranger to suffering. If you hadn't heard yet, he actually passed away last week after a three-year battle with pancreatic cancer. Here's what he says about suffering. He says, Christ did not suffer so that you never would. He suffered so that when you did, you become like him. So that when you did, you would become like him. Friends, as, as those who worship God, as those who love and cherish Jesus more than anything else in the world, is there really anything better than becoming more like him? Seriously, is there really anything better? Like you tell me, what better thing has your heart been set on? What better thing are you expecting that God owes you in this life? Conforming to the image of your Savior is your highest good. It really is. And it's also a supreme good for your neighbors, for our creation, and for the glory of God. That you who were once damaged, who were broken, sinful, shameful in every way, that now, now you're a daughter. Now you're a son of the Most High, and more and more... He is conforming you to the image of His Son. How could anything be better for us in this world than that? I said at the start that what Paul says in these verses really has the potential to change everything. Here it is. In all things, in all things, God is working for this good in you. In all things, in the ups and the downs, in the the happy and the sad, in the poverty and the plenty, through the pleasure and the pain, God will do this work within you, is doing this work within you. Which means every blessing and abundance that you enjoy is the chance to develop Christ-like gratitude and generosity. Every setback and obstacle that you face offers to grow your prayerful dependence. Every relationship be it rich friendship or be it those that are fraught with conflict, every relationship is an opportunity for us to to develop the kind of other person-centered love that Jesus had. Every moment of struggle, every moment of struggle, be it mental, physical, relational, spiritual, every difficulty deepens Christ-like qualities of perseverance, patience, hope, Every mountaintop moment, those times when you're out in the world and creation just makes you go, wow, the majesty of creation. It prompts us to flex our praise muscles, doesn't it? Every temptation that we face is the chance for us to stand firm, to resist, to say no, just like Jesus did in the desert. Every one of my moral failures, every one of my mistakes, My missteps, each moment of weakness encourages me to be more deeply humble and to to cherish and grab on to the forgiveness of my merciful Father. Every plan that we make that crashes and burns, that lays in disarray, each one is another moment for us to learn Jesus' meaning when he prayed, Father, yet not my will but yours. And every good thing that is lost to us, that is taken from us, every devastating disappointment we will face, 
is an invitation for us to lift our eyes and to hunger for heaven, to look beyond the darkness of now to the glory of our tomorrow. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Even in a world frustrated by sin. And you know, it should not come as a surprise to us at all that that's the case, because that in fact is the story that's been told in the Bible the whole way through. Because God works, sin doesn't win. Suffering and death don't get the final say in this story. That's exactly what Jesus' resurrection proclaims. Sin doesn't win. And that's not just a truth that we're waiting to see. It's a truth that's playing out in our lives this very day because even when life hurts, God is at work for our good. I'm going to give the uh, final word on this to the story that we started with, to Al and to Mez. Here is how God carried them through their season of suffering. And then we'll pray. I remember saying to someone that I couldn't logically say or see that God was good and that he was in control through that particular circumstance. And yet I really believed those two things. And it almost dumbfounded me that I could say with all certainty that God was good and that he was in control. And it really showed me that faith was a gift from him and that he had equipped us with what we needed to get through that rough situation. And it was just nothing, like nothing that we did and nothing that we had. I didn't think that my faith was in this amazing, robust place beforehand, but he, he gave us what we needed day to day to just hold on to him through that season, knowing that he'd bring us out the other side at some point. Not knowing in what shape or form, but knowing that he would. I think that was real the entire time. There's stuff retrospectively where we look back and go, wow, um, God really, really grew us together as a couple. Um, Really solidified our marriage relationship taught us a lot about being content in him rather than needing what we thought would make us happy like kids. Together we went through this pit and came out thankful to God that he'd made us and saved us and that we had this hope that was enough. And we did have to trust God with her because we love her and he's got her and we want her. But he is providing her with a place so much better than we could ever. And we look forward to sharing that with her when we meet her. We'll never be able to say that we, were, we are thankful to have gone through what we went through and to have had to lose our daughter that way. But we are truly thankful for the kindness and the mercy that God has shown us in 
um, teaching us so much through it and through, through losing her and enduring that with him um, side by side. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know uh, more than even we do about the frustrations and the groaning and the suffering of this world and of each of us in this room this morning. You know it, Lord, because you came and you suffered and died yourself. You know it, Lord, because your spirit that resides within us it suffers as we do. Thank you, Lord, that you, you don't leave us or abandon us in our pain, but that you draw near. You even groan for us. Lord, we thank you that you're not just a God who's come, but you're a God who has promised. Promised us all an eternal glory that far outweighs, far outshines uh, the life that we're living right now. We long for that day, Lord, and we pray that that hope would rest heavy in all of our hearts this morning as we've been reminded of the way that you are able to bring good even in terrible, tragic circumstances. We know, Lord, that oftentimes that's a mystery to us, especially in the moment. And yet we pray that, like we've heard from Alan Mez testifying this morning, that we might hold on to you uh, even as you hold on to us. And that our knowledge that you're a good God uh, who is going to restore all the brokenness and make all things right again, we pray, Lord, that that hope might sustain us and that as we do, you would be most glorified through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.